If you're interested in demons in Christianity and demonology in the history as well as in the contemporary world, you really don't want to miss this one out. Hello everyone, I'm Angela and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be on demonology in the context of Christianity, with an historical overview on the matter, to then move on to the contemporary world and how demons are portrayed in pop culture. Our fantastic guest, who will share their knowledge with us, is my friend and fellow scholar Jonathan. Dr. Jonathan O'Donnell is a postdoctoral researcher at University College Dublin. Their main area of expertise is Christian demonologies and systems of social prejudice. So help me in welcoming Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Angela. <laughs> Thank you for being here on my YouTube channel. It's a pleasure. <laughs> How are you today? Are you feeling... <laughs> Uh, I'm like coping with, you know, quarantine and the state of the world generally, but things are pretty good. So yeah. the word madness continues. <laughs> <laughs> that it does, that it does. <laughs> yeah, but today's topic is going to be demonology. So let's crack on with our questions. <laughs> the first thing that I'd like to ask you, Jonathan, is can you please uh, give us an overview of demonology in its early days? How did it come to be and develop? So, what we kind of call demonology kind of has a couple of roots, like one that is more general and one that is, I guess, specific to Christianity, uh, Christian demonology being my specialization. Um, so, in a more general sense, demonology often refers to uh, beliefs and practices related to evil spirits. Um, in, so this kind of originates historically, in at least in its kind of, sort of Christian and Jewish forms, uh, in the context of kind of ancient Near Eastern desert spirits, specifically storm spirits that were seen to cause disease and plague and kind of death. So a number of kind of rituals and practices evolved related to ways to defend uh, people from getting sick, from dying, like due to the effect of these kind of evil spirits. Um, I mean, a, more, a recent example of, of in pop culture of that would be something like Pazuzu in The Exorcist, who is a ancient Mesopotamian storm demon. And was in fact like one of the demons that you invoked to protect against the other demons um, in that context. So that's a kind of like general where what we think of as demons kind of come from historically. Um, and that is kind of the context that they appear in sort of ancient Babylonian traditions, in Judaism, especially, uh, particularly Second Temple Judaism, um, and also kind of in early Christianity. Uh, the way we get specifically what we think of partially as demons in Christianity, however, um, is kind of partially related to the word. Um, so if you look at, look at the kind of etymology of the word demon, the word originally refers in Greek to these kind of intermediate spirits that existed between 
kind of the gods and humanity. And early Christianity was very big on basically accusing uh, non-Christian deities, particularly kind of pagan deities, of being demons. And this kind of had um, two different levels. On the one hand, it was an explicit demotion of these deities to the level of demons, like to say that you think these are gods, but actually they're just these kind of intermediate lesser spirits and like they don't actually have as much power as you say. Um, on the other hand, this relates to um, Christianity, early Christianity's kind of uh, slightly combative relationship with both pagan deities and kind of, I guess, more traditional ideas of demons as kind of wilderness uh, desert spirits. Uh, and this kind of developed throughout early Christianity, specifically in the context of Roman imperialism uh, and kind of early, early Christian persecutions in the Roman Empire. Uh, and gradually over time, you have um, a development of conceptions of demons as existing in, I guess, two separate but interwoven places. Uh, one would be the wilderness. Uh, if we think of the biblical story of Jesus encountering the devil in the wilderness, for example, and he goes out uh, in his kind of fasting journey, uh, that's a kind of representation of the kind of demons that, that wait in kind of wilderness spaces outside. Uh, the other place is the city, uh, and that relates to the kind of demotion of pagan deities to, um, to the kind of level of, of demons. Uh, so early Christians kind of saw themselves as fighting against demons on, a couple, on those kind of two levels, both in the wilderness and in the city. Uh, and this kind of arises in a couple of uh, forms of what today we would refer to as spiritual warfare, uh, which I'll talk about like later in the interview. Uh, but the couple of ideas, uh, and there's a couple of really good books that are on early Christian demonology, uh, one titled Demons and the Making of the Monk by David Brack, and one just titled City of Demons by Dana Calares. And they kind of deal with these two interwoven sides of this conflict. Uh, in terms of the city, you had uh, early attempts at Christian mission, early attempts at Christianization in the cities, by which Christians in cities would um, use things like the relics of saints, use prayer as a kind of form of weapon, essentially kind of spiritual weapon, in an attempt to drive out uh, the demonic forces they saw as controlling uh, the kind of ancient, sort of late antique cities. Um, those demons, of course, like all those deities and spirits, once they were driven out of the city, would then go into the wilderness, uh, where they kind of lurked around on the kind of edges of, of civilization. Uh, and in this context, you had a very growing development of kind of early Christian monastic traditions uh, that Brack talks about, uh, where monks would explicitly go on journeys into the wilderness, like kind of mimicking Jesus's journey as a way of kind of combating demons directly as a sort of form of devotion. They kind of process this as a way of kind of tempering themselves into kind of divine warriors, like for, for God's cause, like through this kind of combat with uh, demonic forces. So those are kind of the roots of like early Christian demonology. Is it then that the fascination with demons and the study of demons started then? Um, I mean, Yes and no. 
Um, I mean, because of their kind of roots in uh, Mesopotamian storm diet, storm spirits and things like that, there were often a large collection of um, magical texts, for example, like treatises on these spirits, on how to ward against them, on how to use them against each other. Um, early Christian demonology, um, what we think of today as, I guess, demonology, um, was specifically geared around um, the competing relationship of early Christianity, both with uh, what we now call like paganism, for example, or like late antique paganism, uh, but also with other forms of Christianity, with Christian heresies, and on the kind of relationship in which Christianity Orthodox Christianity kind of consolidated itself and its teachings in opposition to other kind of competing forms of Christian doctrine and non-Christian doctrine, in which ideas of demons and ideas of the demonic kind of served as a key way of, say, delegitimizing um, Christian her what became known as Christian heresies and other forms of traditions. Also, I was thinking, uh, what's the relation between demons, their worship, and witch hunts? Okay, so that is, I mean, we're cutting through a few centuries. Um, so I guess as a brief overview, between that early period and the period we know as the witch hunts, you get the rise of kind of formal demonology as a school of theology within the Catholic Church, for example. Uh, you get this increased kind of, kind of consolidation of what demons are, where they come from, what they do, uh, written about extensively, for example, by theologians like Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, for example. Um, the witch hunts are, I mean, I think for a lot of people, when people think about demons um, in a historical context, they tend to think about the witch hunts. Um, the witch hunts refers loosely to a period between the, say, 15th and 17th centuries is usually the kind of main time frame, um, which is kind of the height of the witch hunts. It's when most of the witch hunts are taking place. Um, the actual witch hunts themselves have kind of earlier roots that I'll talk about in a moment, um, but also they kind of carry on in a more piecemeal fashion. Uh, for quite a while afterwards. I guess one of the interesting things that happens between these places is a shift in understanding of demons, of heresy, and of notions of witchcraft. Um, it was very common, particularly after the conversion of the Roman Empire um, to Christianity, to see Christianity as in a period of triumph. Um, and for a, lot of, uh, for a lot of Christians, this was framed um, in the language of the kind of millennium from, uh, from the book of Revelation and from kind of biblical prophecy. Uh, the millennium being the period where the Jesus would kind of reign over the world for a thousand years. Uh, but specifically, Satan would be, um, Satan and demons generally would be kind of imprisoned during this period. Uh, and after the conversion of the Roman Empire, it was very, very common for uh, a general attitude of seeing demons as defeated, as like bound, as kind of uh, tied up uh, and unable to really affect the world in like a concrete way. Uh, this is interestingly uh, illustrated by the fact that you have many accounts from, say, the 8th to the 12th century of monks and Christian priests like 
just explicitly calling up demons in rituals to do their bidding, for example. And this was considered slightly unwise, like probably not a thing you should be doing, but it wasn't like, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't like a problem of kind of national or like church importance. It was kind of an issue between the individual priest and the state of their soul, for example. Uh, but the general attitude was that like, you can use demons to kind of do your bidding. Um, yeah, they might be a threat to the individual believer, but they're not really a threat to say Christendom, the state of Christian society, like the kind of the general trajectory of, of how the world is developing, for example. Uh, this started to change um, kind of in the 12th century and especially in the 13th century, uh, partly as a reaction to the Black Death, um, which radically shifted the uh, sort of socio-political situation in Europe. It threw a lot of things into chaos. Uh, it kind of began the kind of collapse of uh, what we now know as feudalism. Um, you had mass mo migration and movement of the kind of peasant class and things like that. Uh, basically, it was a time of kind of great upheaval. And during this time, you also got the development of a number of Christian heresies, uh, the most famous probably being the kind of the Cathars and the Waldenses and the Beguins and kind of others uh, that were kind of often like apocalyptic or apocalyptically kind of related groups of Christians who were kind of advocating for kind of radical social reform based on kind of their interpretations of the, of the gospel and of the Bible generally. Uh, this kind of led to a crisis within the, well, I mean, it would have been the Catholic Church at this point, but like the, the um, traditional Orthodox establishments of Christianity in Europe uh, specifically, its relationship to monarchs and to the crown, the ideas of the divine right of kings, and similar processes. Uh, but the general, but this kind of led to a number of changes in attitudes to heresy, um, and particularly the attitudes, the relationship between heresy and witchcraft. Uh, this is kind of covered very nicely in um, Alain Boros' book, Satan the Heretic, which is a fairly slim book that kind of talks about this transition. Uh, but essentially, you had kind of two ideas, um, one of witchcraft, which was an individual act of uh, sometimes using demons to do your bidding uh, or casting magic generally. And while this was kind of unwise, it was a threat primarily just to the believer. And then you had an idea of heresy, and heresies were social, they were group-based, they were kind of threats to the established church. Um, but historically, these had been kind of seen as fairly separate. And then in the 12th and 13th centuries, you have a kind of gradual um, merging of these two ideas in doctrines within the Catholic Church. There's a couple of like papal bulls, for example, that explicitly um, combine the two. And one of the effects of this is that heresy became associated with magic and witchcraft became associated with social groups and social movements, and not just being an individual action. Uh, so, and this idea travels through to what later became the witch hunt period, where you get a merging of these ideas in the idea that there are kind of these vast conspiracies of witches working in secret to kind of undermine the authority of Christendom to undermine the, ch the integrity of the church and to kind of institute kind of widespread social chaos 
essentially. Um, this kind of found its manifestation in a number of um, demonologies, kind of demonological treatises by um, key kind of witch hunters, the most famous of which being the Malleus Maleficarum or the Hammer of the Witches by um, Kramer and Sprengler. Uh, but there was also a number of other works. There was Johann Weyer's uh, Pseudomonarchia Demonorum, for example. There was uh, Jean Vaudan's On the Demon Mania of Witches, uh, which I've written about. Uh, and of course, King James wrote his own famous demonology. So this idea that witches were organized with social and that witchcraft was, became a kind of threat to the social fabric um, leads into the idea of worship of demons, or kind of demonolatry, I guess would be the, the technical term, uh, which previously in earlier historical eras like hadn't really been an issue outside of like the early Christian attempts to combat paganism in, in the kind of Roman Empire shortly after. Um, but the idea that you could worship demons and you could essentially work for demons, like in a spiritual sense, like became a, a symbol of threat. Um, it became, rather than just being a, a threat to your soul, it became a threat to the nation, to the authority of the king, to the authority of the church. Um, and so you start getting the development of manuals like the Malleus Maleficarum and others that are sent to kind of discern like, okay, who are witches? How do you identify them? What do they do? Um, what practices do they engage in? Uh, as an effort to kind of identify these groups that are essentially like working in secret to undermine like the nation or the, the early idea of the nation. Uh, one of the key things to remember here is that witchcraft was tried um, in secular courts. It was technically a secular crime rather than a religious one. Uh, at this period, religious courts and secular courts being separate. Uh, it overlapped quite heavily with ideas of treason and conspiracy, um, which I think to a kind of modern um, understanding probably seems very strange. I remember I was quite shocked the first time I, I read about this, for example. Um, but so you, but you start getting the development of ideas like the, the witch's meeting, the idea that witches are meeting in secret, that they're pledging allegiance to the devil, uh, that they are using demons um, to, say, destroy crops, to cause infanticide. Was the problem the fact that witches were communing with uh, demons, or was the magic per se? Uh, I mean, it was kind of a combination of the two. Um, and part of that as relates to the way that um, magic was kind of understood in this period and the way that demons were kind of understood in this period. Uh, so one of the kind of core elements of demonology, and particularly in this period, but also more recently, is that demons don't have the capacity to create things. Um, this is kind of most notably, um, demons can't create. Um, and so how demons were a threat to the social order when they can't technically create anything, and this was kind of tied into the idea that they didn't have any kind of real power, uh, it became a question of like, okay, so where are these demons getting their power from? And various doctrines developed that basically they were kind of co-opting divine power and kind of rerouting it through kind of nefarious ritual practices. 
Uh, and this is kind of how magic ties in in this period. Like magic was the kind of way of kind of using these illegitimate forms of kind of divine power, basically, and kind of channeling them. So basically, witches were stealing powers from entities who were stealing powers from other <laughs> yeah, from kind of that. Yeah, that, that's kind of how it went. Or rather, that, that through, through things like the demonic pact, um, the witch was kind of pledging herself. I, I use her because witches in at least Western and Central Europe were usually female. Um, but like the witch was through through the demonic pact, the witch was kind of pledging herself to work for the devil, work for demons, uh, who then granted them this power that they had kind of co-opted from from the divine. Um, uh, an example of of the way this worked, for example, would be ideas of how like the sacrament was used um, in things like the Black Mass, for example. The idea being that the sacramental wafer kind of had this innate divine kind of energy or power to it. So by kind of taking the this kind of store of power and then um, kind of abusing it in the kind of black mass context, like allowed them to kind of subvert its energy to like new and nefarious ends. Like for example, in the um, in the Italian Renaissance, they used to make a difference between. Uh, natural magic and witchcraft mm. and natural magic was um, basically healing or uh, doing magic but through means of natural elements like plants mm. and herbs and concoctions whereas uh, witchcraft was communing with demons and entities and of course any kind of entity which was not god uh, would be mm. yeah yeah so yeah, there's a the kind of gradual conflation that happens, I think, over the course of, of early modernity in particularly like northern and central Europe, where ideas of kind of natural magic and ideas of witchcraft get increasingly kind of combined. Um, yeah. So do you feel that then uh, by the end of the Renaissance, these two ideas were combined into one so that everything was witchcraft and it was bad? <laughs> I mean... It, it, it varies a lot by place, and I think this is kind of something to keep in mind with the witch hunts in Europe, um, is that witchcraft, while there were kind of commonalities that were shared between, say, the United Kingdom and France and Germany and Italy, like, also, like, these ideas kind of developed, like, in those spaces, like, somewhat distinctly. Uh, and this is also kind of reflected in, like, punishment, for example, like, witches in England were generally not burnt, for example, they generally hung. Yeah. Even in Italy, it was uncommon. It mm. did happen, but it was uncommon. Uh, because it's very common for people today to see the witch hunts as effectively medieval. Um, they see them as sort of happening in this kind of bygone era, like long, long ago. And I think it's important to realize that the witch hunts happened in what we generally refer to as early modernity. Uh, we're dealing with the period kind of when feudalism is kind of collapsing and what we think of today as the kind of rise of the nation, the idea of the nation state is kind of slightly coming about. And the witch hunts have a very specific relationship to that and to the rise of the nation state, uh, kind of in two uh, very different ways. Um, 
firstly, ideas of witch witchcraft, uh, particularly in their kind of more formalized capacity, were generally disseminated um, from fairly centralized forms of authority. A lot of them came from people who were, say, high up in the courts or related to um, the forms of government uh, in particular nations. And they were kind of disseminated to um, the periphery. Uh, but this is particularly the case with um, punishments for witchcraft. Like a lot of a lot of the way that uh, witchcraft was dealt with was kind of radiated out from these fairly centralized forms of government uh, and then kind of practiced by uh, like regional authorities on groups. Uh, but this kind of changed over the course of the kind of 15th to the 17th centuries. You had this shift. Uh, and eventually you had kind of the opposite happening where uh, it was the the regional authorities that were kind of getting overzealous that were like doing particularly kind of brutal forms of of witch hunts and one of the ways that a modern nation states like centralized was essentially through cracking down on those regional governments um to stop them persecuting witches like in the harsh ways that they had previously been pushing like in in prior eras so you have these kind of movements of kind of decentralization and then centralization that kind of a key to the early formation of the nation state that's very tied up with um, the, wit the witch hunts and the way the witch hunts were kind of practiced. Um, another kind of key, slightly more, um, I guess, maybe abstract point related to that is the way that like the diabolical pact, like specifically the, the witch's relationship to the devil, uh, was very much modeled on feudal systems of power and feudal oaths. Uh, the feudal oaths of fealty being the idea that, you know, like uh, you would swear fealty to a lord who swore fealty to the king. and But there was these kind of generally reciprocal networks where you're expected to like, okay, I'll work for you in return. You let me work on your land, blah, blah, blah. These are kind of the general structures. Um, and the demonic pact very much works on that model. Um, it's the idea that kind of you have these two or two or more like beings that are contingent, they have limited power in themselves. Like neither the witch nor the devil are omnipotent, are like have um, absolute authority. Like they're beings of limited authority who are kind of entering into a transactional relationship um, based on kind of spiritual power and the spiritual transference of power. Um, and in that context, I think it's important to situate it in the context of the rise of the nation state and in the, and in the connection to the rise of state sovereignty and the idea of the nation state authority as being centralized and absolute. Um, the idea that you owe fealty to the, the king or the ruler, not because they're part of this kind of network of transactional relationships, but because they are absolutely they have absolute authority and you owe authority to them like because they are the, because just because and to kind of wrap that point up like you see this manifested in some early works of political philosophy for example uh, the most obvious example being thomas hobbes book leviathan which is kind of one of the early um published in i think um 1650 uh one of the early formulations of absolute state sovereignty and uh hobbes talks about the witch um, in in Leviathan, like at several points. Uh, and he makes the point that he doesn't actually believe that witches have any power. 
but they should be persecuted anyway because the their belief that they have power is a threat to like social order basically um this idea that basically like the the witchcraft and the the witch the witch's belief that they have this spiritual power the supernatural power like was itself a threat to the nation state and to kind of systems of authority like in the nation state it makes sense in in the perspective of hobbes philosophy <laughs> yeah yeah it does uh hobbes wasn't the only one like i mean it's not a surprise it's not not necessarily a shock that king james wrote the demonology considering he was also convinced that witches were literally trying to overthrow him from being king um, <laughs> He he famously he almost had a shipwreck on the way back from France once and and thought it was witches like calling up storms to kind of try and take him out, which is is always fun. Um, yeah, it seems like sort of blends into superstition when it when it comes to yeah. this kind of yeah. Oh, very much so. Fears, yeah, because it's like irrational fears, I'd say. So, well, of course, that depends on. The definition of rational <laughs> yeah pretty much um i guess that and i guess definition of rational like moves us on quite neatly to the next topic you wanted to talk about why has demonology fallen out of fashion mm. in modernity yeah i mean so i guess there are kind of multiple levels to this um like there's one degree to which that it didn't fall out of fashion but i'll get on to that in a bit um Demonology as a kind of formal theological discipline um, mostly falls out of fashion like through modernity. And I think part of this is kind of happens for a number of reasons. Um, one is related to the witch hunts and really particularly related to the brutality of the witch hunts. Like a lot of um, particularly intellectuals in Europe, once it got to the kind of 17th and the 18th centuries, are kind of looking back at this period and being like, well, that's a bit... It's a bit off, wasn't it? Uh, it didn't really, it felt um, like demonology being so closely tied up to the witch hunts, particularly their brutality, like made a lot of particularly the kind of intellectuals in Europe uncomfortable. Like they saw it as this kind of element of irrationality. Um, and this kind of generally ties into the rise of uh, secularization uh, and the kind of rise of kind of enlightenment rationalism, um, because um, as kind of as kind of ideas of of the secular uh, and ideas of enlightenment rationalism kind of gained uh, traction within Europe, uh, a lot of most of the kind of religious institutions, both um, particularly the Protestants, like, and, but also also Catholicism, particularly in Protestantism. Um, started to try and adjust uh, their ways of doing religion to be more kind of, to seem more rational, basically, to seem more kind of in tune with the times. Uh, and demonology was one of those aspects of this that seemed a bit too irrational, a bit too uh, outre, a bit too out there. Uh, it didn't really fit an idea of a kind of enlightened form of faith, basically. Uh, this is also related closely to the fact that there was also a turn towards um, not like biblical literalism that kind of comes later, but like a closer attention to like 
what was actually in the Bible and what the Bible said. Because while demons are mentioned in the Bible and discussed in the Bible at several points, um, most of what had become kind of formal theological demonology at that point was not remotely related to what was in the Bible at all. It was a kind of collection of extra-biblical traditions, extra-biblical figures. Um, I mean, you can see this if you look at kind of early modern demonologies like the Pseudomonarchia Demonorum, for example, and you look at, say, how many demons that are in there are actually based on demons that are referenced in the Bible, and it's a very few of them. Uh, like, a lot of them are mostly invented um, or mostly products of kind of folk traditions or other kinds of non-biblical tradition. It's a combination of this kind of return to the Bible as a kind of source text, particularly in uh, Protestantism, because the Bible was being translated into vernacular languages at this point. Uh, and this kind of rise of Enlightenment rationalism meant that for a lot of the kind of formal um, Christian denominations, like formalized demonology became increasingly kind of marginalized. Uh, and you see this um, to, through to today, in fact, um, with the way that like evil is talked about in, um, say, like Anglicanism, for example. Um, so you get this transition from kind of talking about demons as a kind of multiple multiplicity and plurality uh, to talking about Satan as a specific individual. Like, like, yeah, there might be demons, maybe, but we don't really talk about them. We're going to focus on this kind of singular figure. Uh, and then towards today, like, there's a far more common trend of just talking about evil, like in this kind of depersonified um, way, uh, to the point where I think a few years ago, the Anglican Church, like, actually took out references to Satan from its baptismal rite, for example, uh, and replaced them with just references to evil, like, generally. Um, because, basically, their argument was basically because for young people today, like, Satan is a bit too strange and out there and, like, doesn't really make a lot of sense to people. So, and when talking about evil, like, basically connects more to people. That kind of illustrates that kind of trajectory that kind of happens over the past kind of several hundred years, like, with regards to the kind of diminishment of formalized demonology in, in denominations. And would you say that in doing so, they made it more they were trying to be more rational or more secular? I think kind of both in some ways. Um, definitely more rational, especially early on. Um, I think the two, I think the two, I think the ideas of, sec of secularity and kind of rationality are very closely entwined um, throughout modernity, but particularly in the early parts um, and through to today, in fact. Um, so kind of yes to that question. <laughs> Yes to both. <laughs> yes to both. We can see that in the contemporary world there is a resurgence of the interest in demonology, which is found both among magic practitioners and in pop culture. So can you tell mm. us something more about demonology in the contemporary world? I can. And um, I guess to do this I'm going to have to roll back very slightly to the mod early modern period as well. Because while... While demonology was definitely diminished within kind of formal denominations, uh, especially in the Protestant tradition, it did survive in a lot of different ways. Um, you started, it cropped up a lot in apocalyptic movements, for example, like apocalyptic forms of Christianity, um, um, ha often had a stronger focus on, if not 
demons generally, like the devil specifically, like as a force of kind of active, um, as an active force of evil in the world. Um, you also, at the same time, had the appropriation of demons in like radical traditions in Europe, like uh, specifically things like the anarchist and the socialist traditions, and the kind of early women's liberation movement, like appropriated a lot of bits from, from the demonic and from kind of Christian imagery of the demonic, like as a way of articulating social protest. Um, there are a few really good books on this, uh, but. One of the kind of other key aspects of this is relates to things like conspiracy theories and the rise of what we today refer to as conspiracy theories. Uh, there are scholars who have pointed out that like Christian ideas of Satan are kind of like the original conspiracy theory uh, because the idea of Satan as this kind of invisible, dark, manipulative force that's kind of controlling the the world. And there's a lot of continuity between that and like the witch hunts, for example. And the witch hunts is this idea of this conspiracy of witches trying to undermine society. Um, but you essentially get like the rise of, you, you get this kind of continuation of ideas of the demonic uh, in kind of more, more and less secularized forms, like uh, or ideas of evil as a kind of this underlying hidden force that's kind of manipulating society behind the scenes that becomes very, very prevalent in um, apocalyptic movements throughout the 19th and, and the early and the 20th centuries. Uh, so you have that. But related to pop culture, probably one of the key aspects that popularized demons in the contemporary era uh, are movies like The Exorcist. Um, and other kind of pop culture phenomenon that really put demonology and the idea of demons kind of back on in the public consciousness uh, in a kind of large way. Uh, I know there's been some scholarship uh, that talks about how how uh, ideas of possession, like demonic possession and uh, exorcisms actually changed after The Exorcist came out, for example. Uh, because there, there had been demonic possessions like ongoing all of this time like within traditions but like the way that these were manifested and the way people acted when they were possessed like apparently increasingly started kind of mimicking uh, the way it was depicted in pop culture kind of after these kind of landmark projects came out wow. um yeah uh so you have this like interesting kind of feedback uh between pop culture and the way that these religious forms are kind of manifesting like on the ground. So basically today, uh, in a way, you've kind of ended up with two, especially related to pop culture, you have this kind of, these kind of different conceptions of, of demons. Uh, on, the other, on the one hand, you have kind of the exorcist school of figures like Pazuzu, who isn't actually a Christian demon, is actually an ancient Mesopotamian demon, but you know. Um, but you have the kind of Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Ninth Gate, um, these kind of movies that have these kind of figures of kind of that use Christian demonology kind of fairly directly or indirectly. They're drawing on these particular kind of images of the devil as this kind of underlying force in society. Um, maybe usually evil, 
in some movies, slightly less so, or at least, you know, morally ambiguous. Um, on the other hand, of course, you have uh, TV shows like Lucifer, for example, uh, that have the devil as a kind of fairly debonair, kind of very sexy debonair, um, anti-hero, uh, sometimes just hero, but definitely kind of slightly edgy, edgy hero. Um, and that that comes out specifically the kind of Milton, Paradise Lost, post-Paradise post Lost tradition of what is sometimes referred to as kind of romantic or symbolic Satanism, just the kind of uh, appropriation of the demonic like as a symbol of cultural rebellion, um, like passion, uh, social transformation, that whole kind of school of thought. Which is quite common among certain Satanists nowadays. <laughs> I mean, that kind it's of kind interpretation, of, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the founding of modern Satanism. It's kind of built on that. Like, whether you're talking about um, the, the Church of Satan or the Satanic Temple or um, some of the kind of earlier precursors that you get that are, like, more or less explicitly Satanist. Um, some really good books on this are um, Ruben van Buurk's Children of Lucifer, uh, which is on the kind of, it's like a history of, of modern religious Satanism that kind of talks about how it developed kind of through the, the sort of 18th and 19th centuries uh, and the, then the 20th century. Uh, per Faxnell's book, Satanic Feminism, is a really, really good study of uh, usage of kind of demonic and satanic imagery, like in the women's liberation movement, specifically in the 19th century. Um, but both of these, both of these are kind of reacting to this kind of early, uh, historically, those kind of roots are reacting to um, the kind of rise of secular rationalism and the rise of kind of secular modernity, uh, but in the context of a culture that is still very steeped in Christianity. Um, so you have Christi although institutions may be secularizing they are like christian imagery is still very prevalent like most systems of authority are very, very heavily tied to christianity uh, and in that context like appropriate especially with the kind of formal diminishment of of demonology like as a kind of focus it opens up it opened up this space for uh these kind of more playful ironic or like um revolutionary kind of interpretations of kind of demonic imagery like as a challenge to a status quo that is still like deeply embedded in kind of christian symbolism and like christian symbols of authority and i think it's it's, it's important in that context to note that those visions like although they're very very prevalent in say the early 18th century like gradually tend to fade over time uh as like society becomes more secular, particularly in Europe, like that kind of revolutionary uh, appropriation of the demonic, like loses a lot of its symbolic value and or its symbolic power because society is no longer as heavily steeped in in the tradition that it was opposing. And in that context, I think it's important to recognise that a lot of modern forms of religious Satanism, as whether that's the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple are not only, but like very, very prevalent in contemporary America, uh, where Christianity still has that kind of immense cultural hold, like over 
over what is ostensibly a secular country. Um, but it has it, it, it's in that space where those kinds of um, forms of revolutionary or kind of countercultural symbolism like have the potential for like larger symbolic resonance because they're they're happening in a context where uh, Christianity is still incredibly powerful, like both institutionally but also culturally generally. So I guess I can talk a bit about demons in general and contemporary, like, I guess, American culture um, or con the contemporary kind of world in general. Um, because we're kind of seeing a resurgence over the past 30 years or so with, uh, I guess, more formalized demonologies again. Um, not necessarily in the established Christian denominations, in say the Anglican, not necessarily in the Anglican tradition, um, or like, even like formal evangelical churches like the Baptists, for example, but particularly in kind of charismatic and Pentecostal churches, or like neo-charismatic churches, which are um, Neo-charismatic in this context, meaning uh, charismatic churches that are not formally affiliated to any particular denomination. Um, so over the past 30, 30 or so years, you've had the rise of uh, spiritual warfare discourses uh, in contemporary America and globally through missionary networks, uh, in which this kind of more elaborate um, returns to demonology are kind of happening. And in a lot of ways, these are interesting because they're returning to uh, an idea that was very prevalent in when demonology was more formalized in, say, the early church in the medieval period. Um, the other deities um, from other traditions are metaphysically real. They're just evil, essentially, in this context. Uh, so a very common belief in a lot of kind of mainline Protestant churches, for example, is that other deities from other traditions like aren't real, like they don't really exist. They're, they're kind of empty idols, basically. Uh, but it's important to realize that that wasn't actually the view of the early church in Christianity. Like early Christianity, like... Um, saw other deities very much as real. They just saw them as not necessarily good and as less powerful than, than their conception of, of God. Um, and contemporary, uh, contemporary sort of Pentecostal and charismatic churches are very much kind of going back to some of those traditions in the sense that they're framing um, other deities, but also also other interpretations of the Christian deity that they don't necessarily agree with um, as these, as essentially as, as demonic, uh, but as kind of metaphysically real and just kind of evil and nefarious and out to deceive humanity. Uh, this plays out in their constructions of all contemporary paganism, for example, but also um, new age traditions, um, also Islam, because they're very convinced that um, God in Islam is not the same as the Christian God, but like there are a lot of books that they write trying to argue this point. Um, forms of Christianity they don't agree with, they'll tend to point towards that, like in the more anti-Catholic uh, strands of Protestantism, for example, they'll accuse Catholicism of secretly being um, in league with demons. Um, 
But like one of the ways this has kind of led to this kind of general movement has led to the production of kind of vast quantities of literature, which is uh, what I primarily study in my uh, kind of research, ongoing research um, of spiritual warfare manuals, which are kind of these books that are kind of combinations of a self-help guide, a kind of demonological treatise, and I guess a military tactics manual. Um, and they have various different functions depending on the manual in question. Some of them will be targeted uh, at even, I'll say, other evangelical Christians who don't believe the demons are real. And the purpose of the book will then be to convince the reader that, in fact, demons are real and like act in the world. Um, you'll have other books that assume you already think that, and they'll be more geared towards teaching you like how the demonic realm operates, like what demons are, what they do, like how you can find them. Um, you'll have other books that are, say, um, more tied in with kind of conspiracist subcultures that will accept both of those previous points or then be like, oh, this is how the demonic works in, say, contemporary U.S. government or in international relations or in, like, um, sort of global religious paradigms. Uh, but you have the, but essentially there's this kind of production of this kind of vast quantity of um, sort of charismatic and evangelical literature that's entirely geared around um, how that the demonic is real and how the demonic operates in the contemporary world. Uh, and these are in a lot of ways like less formalized than say what we think of as the formal demonologies of uh, like the early modern period example. Like these are not, these are not kind of uh, Johann Weyer's um, pseudomonarchia demonorum. Like these are not generally going to contain like, elaborate hierarchies of demons like telling you like how many legions they control like what their specific specializations are like what like they won't kind of contain that much detail but they will contain like uh information on say like specific demonic figures that are very common in these movements um including uh figures like jezebel for example who i've written about and or leviathan uh, or the antichrist spirit for example um, sometimes you'll, they'll just be referred to as spirits of uh, negative behavioral or emotional traits. So demons will be like a spirit of hatred or a spirit of envy or a spirit of drug addiction, um, the spirit of alcoholism, for example. Um, this is a kind of generally like supernaturalized framing of, um, of the world and of the idea of I guess, like, individual problems and, like, social problems and uh, the state of the general sort of health of the nation, for example, will all be tied up with this underlying kind of demonological discourse where kind of demons underlie the various problems of society. So, Jonathan, thank you very much for this interview. It was really fascinating. And pleasure. I'm sure... And I'm sure that the other members of the symposium will really appreciate it. So I'd like to ask you, how can people contact you in case they want to? And do you have anything coming up in terms of books, works? and? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. 
Uh, okay, so um, I've recently created a website where you can find me. Uh, so you can find me at um, drsjodonnell.com, uh, which is uh, so you can contact me through there. Um, in terms of work, I have a few things coming out. I have a couple of articles uh, that have recently been released, uh, one on anti-Semitism and one on the kind of politics of witchcraft. I have another one coming out dealing with uh, spiritual warfare in the context of contemporary Japan, and that should be out in the fall. Uh, however, the big project that I have coming out is I have a book uh, releasing later this year. It's, uh, it's currently scheduled to release on November 3rd. It's being published by Fordham University Press. Uh, the title of the book is Passing Orders, uh, Demonology and Sovereignty in American Spiritual Warfare. Uh, and it is a study of um, the relationship between contemporary Christian demonology in the United States and its relationship to see, systems of social prejudice and structural discrimination. It looks specifically at... Um, demonologies related to uh, gender and sexuality, related to Islam, uh, related to indigenous traditions and socialism, and kind of other things that the evangelical right generally writes about as apparently bad. Um, Very interesting. So if, that, if, that is, if that is interesting to you, uh, I encourage you to pre-order the book, or at least <laughs> to, to check the work. Yes, and I will leave all the all the links and the references in the info box. So of course, do check them out. So thank you again, Jonathan, for uh, being with us here. It's been a pleasure, Angela. Thank you. This is it for today's video. Hope you liked it. I'd really like to thank Jonathan for doing this interview with me. And I also like to thank Philip Holm. So thank you very much, Philip, for being one of my patrons. If you like this video, smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, leave me a comment because I really, really want to know what you think about what we've talked about in this video. And as always, stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now. We are